This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Back, and I'll be seeing you again in about a month or so. Russia's war in Ukraine marked its first anniversary on the February 24th. It's a brutal, horrible, destructive disaster causing human suffering and economic devastation, not just in Ukraine, but also on the lives of ordinary Russians who are cannon fodder in Putin's war. The war has also had an impact on global hunger and energy supplies and the world environmental crisis. It's no exaggeration to say that this war changed the trajectory of the 21st century, and it has created new divisions among the left, especially in the United States. Ukraine is fighting a legitimate war of self-defense, a war for its national survival, and in that sense could be called a people's war. Calling for peace in the abstract is meaningless in these circumstances, even though an end to the barbarous war is urgent. We mark the one-year anniversary of the war, speaking to Vladislav Starobutsev in Kiev and Jeremy Bigwood, who just returned from Kiev. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Russia's war in Ukraine is entering its second year. Russia's war conduct reminds the world of war tactics from another time. World War I's mass slaughter, making it seem as though history is running in reverse. Ukrainian resistance to Russia's imperial onslaught has inspired the world. Russia's response has been brutal. It has doubled down on destruction since it cannot advance or accomplish its ill-stated war aims. Russia has cracked down on dissent at home, imposed ridiculous censorship, and ramped up its crude propaganda. Millions have left the country to avoid being conscripted or because they oppose Putin's war. Some are fighting Russians in Ukraine. Ukraine, on the other hand, is fighting occupiers and tormentors, suffering untold destruction, but pushing the Russians back. It's urgent to end this war as soon as possible. But on what terms? Ukraine insists peace can only be achieved through the success of Ukraine's resistance to Russia's invasion. Ukraine is fighting a war, as I said in the overall intro, of self-defense, indeed a war for its survival as a nation. Calling for peace in the abstract is meaningless in these circumstances, and some of the so-called anti-war left in the United States are pushing for this, seeing this war as one between the United States and NATO on the one hand and Russia on the other. We're going to get our guest's perspective, and I'm really pleased to have Vladislav Starobutsev with us for the first time. He's a historian of Central Eastern Europe and an activist in the Ukrainian Democratic Socialist Organization, Sozialny Ruch, and now is based in Kiev. And we also have Jeremy Bigwood back with us. He's an investigative journalist and a photojournalist with background in science. And as a journalist, Jeremy has covered the wars in Central America and was in Russia when the war started. He has since traveled in Ukraine three times over the last year, returning just a few days ago. He's now writing a series of portraits of Ukrainians on his Substack Bigwood site. And we'll ask him to be a little more precise so you can actually look at that. But I want to begin with you, Vladislav, and welcome you to the show. Very pleased to have you here for the first time. And maybe maybe just begin with a general question, since I know all Ukrainians have enlisted in one way or another in this fight against Russia. So maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Did you join the forces fighting Russians? And what have you been doing during this last war? And perhaps I could ask you a giant question like, how has it changed your life? Well, (laughs) yeah, when the war started, I tried to go to territorial defense, but I failed because of the lack of the experience. They didn't let me. They said, okay, go away. We don't need uh, unexperienced people here. So I didn't have enough bravery to go again to military and ask again to sign. I have bravery only for one time. (laughs) So I tried to work when the key was under siege on humanitarian help on trying to connect to different people and ask their needs, on like patrolling stuff, 
on giving food to shelters, of finding uh, medication, and all of the necessary things that are needed for uh, like uh, old people or people with special medical needs and so on when all of the infrastructural situation were collapsing. So I was doing all of this stuff and also like participating in general like civilian effort, like digging trenches when was asked or something like this. But it wasn't for a long time and uh, I was doing this only until Kiev was sieged. And after this, I tried to go more in the direction of uh, political work and uh, I, with other members of Social Ruch, organized a major campaign against cancellation of Ukraine's foreign debt as we convinced that this debt put a big strain on our military and civilian expenditures and we need a strong budget at times of the war and we succeeded and this debt was frozen for a few years and we're still campaigning to write it completely off. So it was most of my uh, activities. I was campaigning, managing this campaign about the debt, but also agitating and speaking with uh, left-wing people and uh, generally with different people about perspective of the war and what's going on here, why people should support, especially on the left, Ukrainian resistance and ask for more arms and cooperate with diaspora communities and so on. So it was... uh, main direction of the work and now I'm kind of responsible for international communication in my organization Great, so maybe we should, because you've talked about or the, I guess we can broadly translate that as democratic left social movement and I wanted to just point out and ask you maybe to think about or talk about Ukraine has a really rich socialist heritage dating all the way back to the 1860s and 1870s. And I think that's something very useful to recall and revisit as Putin has pushed this mendacious goal of, in the beginning, denazifying Ukraine. And its history, of course, since the disintegration of the Soviet Union and its independence has been one of it's been been difficult, let's say. It's one of competing corrupt presidents rewarding even more corrupt oligarchs. Yet Russia's imperial war has united previous deep divisions, um, divisions that even led to war in, in 2014, as eastern Ukraine, under the so-called People's Republics of Luhansk and Donetsk, declared independence, or seemingly did, and it's created a new picture now, this war of Ukrainian civil society. So I kind of want to ask you first to explain what Sotsialny Ruch is. You started to talk about it, but also what Russian imperialism has accomplished in Ukraine, especially thinking of what it's done to Ukrainian civil society. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's a lot, I know. Yeah. Sotsialny Ruch is... Uh organization that started of a small Trotsky organization in times of Euromaidan in supporting the protest, Maidan protest and uh, uh, calls for democratization of Ukrainian society against corrupt pro-Russian president Yanukovych. We participated in the Maidan and the popular resistance and tried to connect trade union workers and uh, different civil society organizations with the popular protests and trying to uh, show its social social side and outline all of the social needs and so- social demands that were raised by protesters. So it was what we were doing. But with the time, Sociana Ruch evolutionized in more uh, democratic, broad, anti-capitalist left. And now we are the biggest uh, Latin organization in Ukraine. No longer a Trotskyist one, but a white democratic left. We are calling ourselves new left or democratic socialists. And practically we are uniting different struggles, feminist struggles, trade union struggles, LGBTQ struggles, worker struggles into one big uh, push for socialist ideas and socialist transformation of society. So it's practically what we are doing. Yeah. So that's actually, you know, it puts it in line with, I guess, you could say maybe broadly the development of the left worldwide, even though the left is suffering a lot. But it means, but this sort of broader coalition that also includes anarchists, democratic left socialists, 
former Trotskyists, Trotskyists, all of that. But it's especially interesting and important in Ukraine. Maybe I could just ask you before we talk about Russian imperialism, there's also a Russian left and it's been, you know, brutally repressed, but it's still there, even though it's very difficult now to read, you know, a lot of what various Russian leftists write because they're either declared foreign agents or they're frightened to be public because sentences can be draconian. But I wondered, is there some communication and even perhaps cooperation between Ukrainian leftists and Russian leftists in the wake of this war? Yes, there are a lot. We are cooperating with a few leftist organizations in Russia. Mostly it's uh, Russian socialist movement, it's uh, anti-war feminist movement, and also socialist alternative in Russia. All of these three organizations are having quite a strong position on the war. But also there are a lot of problems in communication because we see that usually Russian organizations don't understand Ukrainian context and usually treat with, I would say, some like uh, learned chauvinism that are just uh, structurally based in Russian society, which promotes some conflicts and misunderstanding between Ukrainian and Russian left and makes communication hard. But uh, we are still participating and still having connections, but w- without conceding to some there of like uh, more showing stereotypes. So uh, something like this. Seems like we should probably talk about some of the stereotypes. But I also wanted to ask because, you know, it's very obvious if you're following this carefully and even listening to Putin's war aims as proclaimed, even as they change that this is a Russian imperial project and that many people worldwide have barely gotten over, I guess, the disintegration of the Soviet Union and have some difficulty recognizing that Russia is no longer Soviet Russia, even though we have had all kinds of problems with that. But nonetheless, much of the left in the West, you know, had this reflexive defense of the Soviet Union. And so many of those same people now have a reflexive defense of Russia. So I don't want to talk about the left per se yet, yet, but I want to understand your analysis or your view on whether we can characterize Russia as imperialist, because even that seems to be in question in so many different quarters. Yeah, I would say that there's like in like colonial studies and decolonial studies, a lot of discussion about not if Russia is empire or not, but of which type of imperialism is Russia. And a lot of uh, very interesting, for, the, uh, for example, the, like a lot of discussion about so-called unique Russian imperialism and specific of uh, Russia as being country that colonized not territories overseas, well, also overseas too, but lands that are directly connected to its border, making its very specific and understudied type of imperialism where you can practically crush any anti-colonial rebellion just by like not crossing any seas and so on. So it created a lot of uh, interesting dynamics in Russian states and its development through imperial time, through Soviet time, and through republic time. And I think the a lot of similarities in all of these periods in Russian imperialism as it developed. And practically, it based on notions of Russian supremacy. Usually it's cultural, not ethnical one, and very structuralized racism. Association of Western world as at the same time an enemy, but also someone who we strive uh, to resemble or like to copy like Western success and so on and so on. It was a topic in Russia in times of Peter the Great or in times of Khrushchev about let's just push the Soviet Union to be the first country that will be better than uh, USA. And the same talk is going on with Putin, who always compares Russia to the West and tries to create this dichotomy. And third is the reliance of Russian state and even Russian imperial identity on external subjects like uh, so-called thesis of brotherly nations of Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Russians as something uh, that big Russian nation and 
small Belarusians and Ukrainians who they call Mala Russians, like small Russians. And this like very paternalistic identity that it is one people and that Russia should defend them, practically defend these nations against themselves. And it's a very big ideological part of Russian states, Russian propaganda and imperialist identity that existed through time. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, Russian imperialism didn't disappear. It practically reborn with new strengths and it started its action in Chechnya by invading Chechen Republic that tried to just fight for its independence and was brutally crushed with two invasions. This was the first major invasion of independent Russian uh, against independent state by newly found Russian imperialism after collapse of the Soviet Union. This is very important because there was no NATO in Chechnya. There wasn't no Nazis in Chechnya. <laughs> and uh, there is no of any of this like justified talks uh, that are going about Ukraine. It was the sole uh, reason of like capturing territory and occupying and just classical imperialism. And in this, also a very important thing that with suppression of Chechnya, Russian state started to build its police military apparatus. As uh, once Engels said a very great quote that I very like, that nations that oppress other nations cannot itself be free. So after the Chechen wars, there were a lot of anti-terrorist campaigns in Russian Federation. Police that developed surveillance and developed different tools to suppress opposition, uh, suppress media, and so on, and practically became the first bricks to building of authoritarian regime and suppress all democratic values. So there was this very strong connection of uh, invasion to Chechen Republic that was absolutely unjustifiable by any talks that uh, some of the left like saying about NATO and so on and so on, and of uh, development of modern Russian authoritarianism. Then after this, Russia invaded in 2017 Georgia mm-hmm. with the same with the same situation. There, there wasn't any NATO expansion in Georgia. There wasn't, I don't know, any Nazis in Georgia and so on. <laughs> but it still was brutally invaded and occupied. And both of these invasions, invasion in Chechen Republic and invasion in Georgia, were tolerated by Western forces were tolerated by general public because of uh, push of imperialist countries and generally tendency in discourse to cooperate with Russia and include Russia in uh, like new world order. For example, when the Second Chechen War started, Tony Blair visited St. Petersburg and was talking to Putin about trading oil, gas, and supplying weapons to Russia when it organized this imperialist invasion to Chechen Republic. So West actively gave a green light for Russian imperialism for all of these years and supplied it with weapons and practically ignored all of the atrocities, all of the crimes committed by Russian state and ignored all the authoritarian tendencies. And did so, if I could just say, did so because... Chechnya was seen as another front of the war on terror. We don't need to go further into that. I just wanted to say one thing that I thought, because this is fascinating, but one thing that I think is different or on a much smaller scale in terms of the war in Chechnya was that that seemed to be so much a deflection in a way. Both Yeltsin and Putin used it to boost their popularity at home, thinking Russians have a traditional enmity against the Central Asians who were seen as money changers and cheaters and and the rest. And so they thought there'd be no popular support for Chechnya, which there was in the first war, but not so much in the second. And so you could say that trying to emulate George H.W. Bush in his Gulf War to create a quick, dirty war that'll boost popularity for electoral purposes 
And Yeltsin seemed to be doing that and Putin to doing it to kind of burnish his war credentials when he was first in office seemed to me. So that's that's of a different magnitude in a way to what he's attempting in Ukraine, which was unprovoked in a way and none and just absolutely incredible, often difficult to even conceive of. Jeremy, I know you want to come in on this, too, and then we'll come back because there's so many other issues. But go ahead, Jeremy, come in on that. I don't think it was surprising at all. I think it helps when you're looking at Russia to understand that there's this concept which is easiest called Ruski Mir. And it's a concept in Russia that Russian society is better than anything else in the world. And it is a very... Russian exceptionalism. Russian exceptionalism, (laughs) but it's a lot. It's very strong. And Mm -hmm. I think, to a large extent, that is driving this war. And I don't think it's about Putin. I think Putin is just a manager. He could leave. And I think Russians would continue this war. I also disagree with the idea that the Russian left is is anything worth talking about at this point. Uh, Mm. Most of the good people have already left, have left a long time ago. And they're not even demonstrating outside of Russia. I mean, I, my view of Russia is has been quite diminished by this invasion and what has happened after it. But I did want to bring up Ruluski Mir, and I was wondering if Vladislav could talk about that a little bit because it is it sort of it goes back to Tolstoyan times, and it seems to be like part of Russian nature. And it seems to have survived very well in the Soviet Union. I want to add another aspect to that, Jeremy. And this is, of course, for Vladislav Starobutsev. And so that is this other question that I'm seeing reading blog posts from Russians and elsewhere, that there is an economic dimension of this war. And even though there's been sanctions and projections that this war will further disintegrate Russia and destroy it, some people are writing that Putin and Ukraine are both in it for the long haul and that it's somehow important economically in the same sense that, you know, the United States has a permanent war economy and Russia is developing one, too. And I'd like I don't know if this is part of any sort of understanding you have about the political economy of Russia and even of Ukraine. But maybe you could address because you brought up something really interesting Vladislav, and that was that a lot of this Russian imperial project is cultural, based on this notion of cultural supremacy, great Russian literature, great Russian everything, right? Music, dancing, all of this, plus, you know, I guess, defeating the Nazis, you know, in World War II. And so could you sort of lift the veil on that and talk about the political economic motive and also address, say, (laughs) Jeremy's point about Ruskimir? Yeah, of course. Uh, I firstly would address your point about Iraq because I think it's very good comparison. Because as well as in US, uh, Iraq war was interconnected with general rise of Islamophobia and police terror. The same was going on in Russia, and um, there was a lot of interconnection in sense that Russia tolerated invasion of Iraq, and US tolerated what was going on in Chechnya. So there was like this ideological imperialist cooperation that we are not talking about your imperialism and you are not talking about our imperialism. Mm -hmm. And both of this imperialist invasion, they gave ideological ground for states to continue doing their imperialism. For example, Russia now saying that, okay, US invaded Iraq, why we cannot invade Ukraine? So there's this logical motivation that they want also to be imperialist and that when one state breaks international world order, other imperialists are very glad to join them and very glad to point to why we cannot do this. And it's also a very important argument against all of these campus that want to appease again mm-hmm. Russia, that it will motivate other invasions. But yeah, absolutely agree with points of uh, Jeremy about Russian world. I would say that Russian society and Russian state very structurally developed on racism, literally, on Mm. racism and colonialism. It's uh, 
such a big part of identity of Russian imperial state. It's a very strong independent actor in the actions of Russian state. Its identity project, very irredentalist, uh, where it's hard to imagine Russian without Ukraine as a Russian colony. And always creating this notion of threat from Ukraine, especially democratic Ukraine. So it, it was always present in Russian ideology, and it was present not only in the Russian Federation, but the Soviet Union. Uh, in Soviet Union and Russian Empire, there was a very strong racial hierarchy. I would say that it was even worse than uh, that uh, was uh, in the U.S. in times of segregation. That uh, there was like a Russian nation that was like dominant colonial nation, uh, like uh, the most glorious one, and so on and so on. Then there were like Ukrainian, Belarusians, Georgians, who are kind of second-class citizens, integrated, who were used by Russian imperialism to oppress other nations, but were oppressed by Russians. And all of the other people who are basically, most of the time, were called by swears and some very inappropriate Russian words, and were treated as just... uh, absolutely first-class citizens, uh, barbarians, and so on. And a lot of these structural hierarchies, uh, they exist now, they existed before, and they create this dynamic of uh, Russian feel of supremacy and feel of uh, need to strengthen this supremacy and this structural relation. So there's a lot of racism that develops more racism and develops more expansion. And it's a huge part of motivation for this imperialism. And I even before this podcast, I looked at the uh, one salary uh, that was saying like uh, that 47% of Russians would continue the war even if Putin will propose a peace plan. So there's a lot of uh, like backlash of Russian societies that thinks that Putin doesn't go enough doesn't go too aggressively against Ukrainians. So there's a lot of this ideological stuff. It's also, you know, it's also worth saying that, you know, there's more fascists in Russia than in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, I would say that uh, there is not much economically driven factors of the invasion, not like immediate ones that I can think of, because mostly this war... It's a serious hardship for oligarchy, for capitalist class in Russia, for practically everyone, because it just produces some kind of uh, economic collapse, and uh, even bureaucracy are not profiting from it. But Mm. I think there is some political motivation for this, uh, that are not the main one, but also supports all of this uh, invasion stuff. It's motivation of bureaucracy to strengthen their position of military elites of police class i would say that russia is police state with very distinct policing class who has also its interest and bureaucracy who controls of uh, private companies of military and of putin's elite who on this using the war also to strengthen their grip on society. So there is also this factor, but I wouldn't say that uh, it is the main one. I think the main one is still, this is ideologically driven war about like irredentialism and identity that strives to self-recreate empire. So... This is great. And I think, you know, we're barely even talking about Ukraine and uh, there's a lot more to do. So I just want to ask you, First of all, you know, there are many myths about this invasion, as well as many myths about who Ukrainians are. And among them, and I've had a lot of programs on this issue already and talked about it, but I think it's worth going through them. So what are these major myths about Ukraine that you can debunk, (laughs) Vladislav? Of course, one that we hear a lot is that that Russians had to invade because Ukrainians were suppressing the Russian language. And that, of course, ignores the fact that there are major cities that are Russian-speaking, even though they're, you know, turning toward Ukrainian. But maybe you could just address some of these major myths. Yeah, I will go from the easiest ones that need the less words to address them to the hardest one, like language, because it's like you need to okay. go history and all this stuff. So... 
course that uh, the war is justified by NATO expansionism and the easiest one because firstly NATO expansion is not something like NATO forcing other countries to join itself yeah. but more of uh, Eastern European countries feeling real threat of Russian imperialism that destroy Chechnya and build police state and to defend from it, uh, from it. And there wasn't any aggressive rhetorics from Ukraine. Actually, countries that demilitarized and denuclearized itself to a very great extent to invade Russia or Russian interests in any way. And I want to just, you know, come in on that with you because it's so incredible to me that you hear this all the time and it seems to be gaining ground among liberals on the left here that this is all NATO's fault. And NATO was expanding and NATO was pushing. And nobody ever asked the question why so many countries in Eastern Europe and even now in Western Europe are begging to join NATO as a, you know, a NATO, which was actually a moribund organization and lost its purpose, but continued as a bureaucracy. And here we have countries begging to join in order to defend themselves, to have more defense against possible Russian incursion. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something like an argument that Russia thrown for like a week before an invasion and then just absolutely stopped and starts to speak about like some absolutely horrendous and horrible ethnic stuff. Like we need to destroy all, all Ukrainians because they like traitors to Russian nation and so on. And for, for these people, all of this context and all of these talks that are on, on the official TV channels are absolutely ignored and they continue with the stuff about NATO expansion, like that even Russia propaganda isn't already using it. So it's the first one. The second one, of course, about Ukraine being all of the Nazis and so on and so on. There was a great article released by my friend, uh, anarchists who were actually busy monitoring fascist violence in Ukraine. It's actually, I wouldn't say there is much comparatively to Russia or comparatively to Western European countries. He monitored like 58 cases of violence against people in 2021, I think, by far right, which is not, not much. And 120 of somewhat violence against just far right violence. So not against people, but property and all of the stuff. Comparatively, it's not a big numbers, especially for alleged Nazi state. Far-right forces still have some ground on the streets and in some military structure, but in military structures they are controlled, and in the streets their influence, however, it's big, but it's it's not as big as portrayed, and certainly it's uh, less than in Western countries where the street violence and street influence of far-right are strengthened by parliamentary influence of such parties as, for example, Alternative for Deutschland or mm. Sweden Democrats or Le Pen or, or Trump, who are now presenting a lot more serious and major fascist forces around the globe than what's going on in Ukraine. But of course, we, we still should acknowledge that the far-right nationalists in Ukraine and they are fighting in the army. And we as left have, I would say, temporary truce for them because uh, it's people's war. And for everyone on every side, main target is to destroy Russian imperialism. And after this, probably there would be problems with Farid with new strengths and new conflicts. Uh, but for now, Farid violence for this year was exceptionally low and influence of Farid also lowered. But there is a still a problem, uh, but I would say that it's not a unique problem. It's a problem that exists in most of the states, sometimes to a bigger extent. So also there is a myth of leftist parties being banned in Ukraine. It's absolutely absurd myth to me, because parties that are in question of being banned, actually, like, very Slavic supremacist, Russian words, racist, homophobic parties that clearly stated their support for Russian invasion or had strong contacts with uh, Russian economic circles, so were financed by Russia or in other way had connections with Russia. The big one is, of course, Communist Party of Ukraine, which is directly connected to Communist Party of Russian Federation. And both of these parties supported the invasion to Ukraine and were particip participating in efforts to actually sabotage 
Ukrainian military. So it's absolutely clear why these parties are banned the same way as fascist parties were banned in Second World War in different countries. Uh, the same way parties that try to support Russia are banned in Ukraine. And it's not about left-wing parties. Not at all. We have a few functioning left-wing parties in Ukraine, and you can absolutely easily re- register a left-wing party in Ukraine. Just there's two preconditions that it wouldn't have any totalitarian symbolics, so no hammer and sickle, and no communism in name. And you can create any party, absolutely. There is no problem in it. And there are legal existing left-wing organizations that face absolutely no persecution and can freely develop participate in their activities, even organize protests in times of war. So in Ukraine, in this alleged totalitarian Nazi state, we had successful strike in times of war. We had successful protests against neoliberal reforms. We had trade union demonstrations. We had protests against cuts in education. And all of this happening in times of the war, in the invasion by left-wing forces. So there is this myth about left-wing parties being banned, absolutely false, and just used for strengthening Russian propaganda. Yeah, let's move to the one, you know, about the Russian language, and then I'll let Jeremy come in on a few points. Yeah, yeah, it's the hardest one, because uh, it's the one where there's some truth to it, but it's very, very confused for people who don't understand the context, and don't understand the countries that have been under heavy pressure of assimilation, and of destruction of their cultural language. In Ukraine, in times of Soviet Union and Russian Empire, Ukrainian language was actively repressed and was assumed as peasant language, as second-class citizen language. And if you wanted to get a, a good job, to get a good education, to get a career, you should speak Russian. And Russian was as like language of civilized people, and Ukrainian was language of peasants. And this situation transitioned even to independent Ukraine until 2014. So all of these structural relations about language, they were still in place. And it only changed in 2014. Before it, it was hard to buy Ukrainian book in bookstore. You, you will go to bookstore, every book is in Russian. Uh, except like a few very very active like people who are really strong on defending their culture everyone in russian no translations to ukrainian nothing like this and uh, it was very very strong discrimination against ukrainian even independent ukraine a lot of structural uh, inequalities in the language and after the maidan there was active push of civil society and population in general to revive ukrainian language to save ukrainian culture and to actively participate in just more people will start to speak about in Ukrainian, more books in Ukrainian, more interest in Ukrainian history. All of this stuff was happening, but of course, uh, it wasn't process like where everyone was happy with it. Russian-speaking people were feeling threatened by this as their privilege was taken and uh, dominant status of Russian was collapsing. And also at the same time, there was some, I would say, growing defensive nationalism uh, that people who tried to defend their culture attacked other cultures, mainly Russian, uh, to just uh, defend Ukrainian because Ukrainian was in this dying position. So there was some tensions, some cultural tensions from one side of people trying to defend their privileged status and from other side of people who feeling oppressed and feeling anger with this. It wasn't a violent stuff, absolutely not. So there wasn't and still isn't violence on the language terms. But a cultural stuff that there is some prejudice uh, against Russian language now, I would say. And there was some after the Maidan. But also there was a situation where practically not uh, Russian was oppressed, but Ukrainian. And now it's created a situation where now Ukrainian becomes a more dominant language in Ukraine, but also there are some anger feelings and some of backlash because of all of the situation from Ukrainians toward Russian language, which creates some language conflicts. And I would say that these language conflicts are 
not like threatening or physical or something like this, but they are more like kind of, I don't know. Sometimes it's uh, not very inclusive, like separation of Russian language from some spaces and something like this. So this became like more popular with the war when, when it started. So uh, some prejudices against Russian language are strengthened now. So, so I can see that this is a very seems to be that this will be a, a continuing issue post-war. Um yeah. and it's an important one too. I would like to get a little bit over to Jeremy now because you know we don't have oodles of time, but stay with us, uh, Vladislav, because I'm sure you'll want to chime in on some things. But Jeremy, I want to welcome you back to the show and to let the listeners know that you've only been back stateside for a matter of days. After having gone back to Ukraine, your first trips to Ukraine had you near Kherson, and now I believe you are entirely in Kiev, but uh, have come back with lots of impressions. We got into Kherson, yes. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I was near there last time, and I got in there this time. I would like to add some things about the language. <laughs> one of One of the things that's striking to me is that most Ukrainians who speak Ukrainian also speak Russian. Many Russians, many people who are in the eastern or the southeastern part of the country who speak Russian have a hard time with Ukrainian. But it doesn't really make much of a difference when it comes to the war. When I was in the area between like Kherson and Mykolaiv, which was like a, a war zone, it was the front lines, uh, last summer, all the soldiers were speaking Russian, or at least the chain of command was talking in Russian. They were fighting Russians, but they were all speaking Russian because everyone knew Russian. So you had the Russian speakers who didn't speak Ukrainian, but the Ukrainian speakers all spoke Russian. So this is how it was done in a very difficult situation where we were actively being attacked by the other side. When I was in Kherson, which was just recently liberated at the end of last year, all of the soldiers who I talked to there were speaking in Russian, too. I did an interview, and it was entirely in Russian. It is an issue. I was just talking to someone today who's from Kiev, who I interviewed when I was in Kiev a couple of weeks ago. She was raised speaking Russian, and she's all pissed off because... <laughs> She doesn't want to have to learn Ukrainian. Well, sorry, you are living in Ukraine after all. We also saw this in the Baltics, by the way, after the disintegration of the Soviet Union, that there were people in Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia who did not speak those languages because they were Russians who moved there because there was a better standard of living or, you know, for whatever yeah. reason. And, you know, it, it might help to learn the language a little bit. I mean, Zelensky did after all. Russian was his first language and he, I mean, he actively studied Ukrainian before the election. I mean, he, he spoke Ukrainian, but I mean, he wanted to get it perfected. I've also spoken with a lot of people from Western Ukraine who really do not like having to get into a taxi in Kiev and having to speak Russian. So so this is an issue that will go. I, I mean, there are taxi drivers who speak, only speak Russian and and the law states that unofficial things like in banks and places like that, you should be speaking in Ukrainian and not Russian. Now, is it okay? we should say that, though, we should I'm interrupting you, but we should just say that this war is not about the Russian language. No, 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 not at all. It's about Russian <laughs> imperialism. And yeah. it's about whether or not Ukraine should be in. Uh, well, Ukraine is an independent country and it will continue to be. One of the things that I wanted to point out to Americans, the strongest thing is that the people who are bleeding here are Ukrainians, and they're often left out of the equation. When huh? people are talking about this war in the United States, they're talking about, oh, big, bad U.S. and NATO beating up on poor little Russia. You know, and Ukrainians are left out of the equation. They should not be. They're really suffering. They're really fighting hard. I've covered wars in a lot of places, and I've never seen anything like this. They have high morale, but they are still very much outnumbered. And when you're outnumbered, that's a problem. And when you don't have 
the right kind of shells for your artillery, that's a problem. And this is a major issue in Ukraine. Is Let me ask you a question. Just I'm interrupting, of course. I'm sorry. But there's two things that I wanted to know. One of the things is that you cannot get any sort of accurate uh, understanding of casualties and deaths on both sides, although there's all kinds of numbers released. And then the other thing is, you know, you just said that Ukrainians are outnumbered. But it's my understanding, and you can correct me, either one of you, that there's like a million Ukrainians mobilized and Russia, you know, in its latest mobilization, tried to get an extra 300,000, which would double their forces. So could you straighten that out to the extent that you know it, whether or not, you know, what the numbers are? Well, I don't have access to the numbers, but what I hear from people on the front lines is that they are uh, outnumbered, is, is that the Russians have much more troop strength especially when you count the Chechens and the other people who are coming in to fight. This is something that I hear that I've, I've heard all of the time. I'm, you know, I do not have the numbers for sure. And I don't know where you get the numbers. Other than- and do you have them, Vladislav, any, any idea of the numbers? I would say that I'm not a military expert, but usually it's fights that going on uh, on small collapse of territory where you can't physically have like a millions of people. So mm-hmm. even in the situation when Russia mobilized less people, it's not like all of these people are at the same time on the front line. And uh, the situation in concrete battle usually is that Russia have more troops and disposal at that moment. And Ukraine mobilized already every, <laughs> practically everyone who it could mobilize, and Russia still have major reserves. So, so there's this. But I wouldn't uh, want to uh, like push this podcast in in more military direction yeah. because okay. I'm feeling weakened on in this. And I would like to go with more to social political one. I would say that uh, it it is good that Jeremy noted that there's high morale and there's like a lot of self-organization society and cooperation and it's it's really a people's war i don't know i never experienced something like this in my life something similar was only in times of modern revolution like when people self-organizing for self-help for like medical help for helping each other building some crafting some shields uh, the same like this but on the like absolutely different scale everyone involved free kitchens Helping uh, internally displaced people, providing even weapons and clothes for the military, and uh, like everyone organized on all of the levels of society, like everyone involved, absolutely. So it's something uh, so global. Well, except bourgeoisie, they are not involved. They are just <laughs> living somewhere, like in Western Europe, luxury life. They are not involved. Uh, I actually remember the quote of Fanon, uh, very well. Reading Fanon uh, really helps you to understand this war. But there was this quote that uh, in, in such times of war, of national liberation, people understand that they are ruling this country and not the like capitalist class or bourgeoisie because they are organizing everything and country run on, on them. And that is general feeling of Ukrainian population. And yep. uh, because of this, there are also problems that are usually not spoken of. Is that uh, Ukrainian government practically withdrawn from the social economical field and all of this uh, need for social security is now on the shoulders of general people on just like self-organization and so on and so on. We are having like something ultra textured style policies now, like social cuts, cuts to social dialogue, anti-labor legislation that just absolutely deny principle of tripartism or like regulation of labor market. No, labor market regulation is like for communists. Uh, like regu- <laughs> regulating something, it's, it's like, well, it's it's communist idea, you know? <laughs> market will solve everything. And it's absolutely insane how it's detached with reality. And because of this, yeah, it's, it's usually not talked about, but Ukrainian government practically pushes this antisocial policies and creates a big pressure on civil society and big pressure on the workers because they're at the same time becoming like unpaid uh, social security workers. 
because they're helping each other because the state don't want to help anyone. They who, wow. And there's this, uh, this tendency is really scary of this like re- realization of some neoliberal Thatcherite market fundamentalist stuff in times of the war. And uh, I think it's very, very good criticism that uh, left should doing, but doing very carefully, not like for pushing Ukraine against its sovereignty to do something and not for denying help, but to saying that Ukraine needs social help and Ukraine needs stability to win this war. That if uh, governments uh, don't provide enough stability and security and don't provide progressive social policies, they are more fragile in times of the war. And I think this is something that left should talk about, like uh, union rights, labor rights, try to connect with trade unions in Ukraine, who are very patriotic, who are securing the country against Russian invasion, but they're also critical of all of this market fundamentalist crap. So this discourse that should, should be taking place and also about future reconstruction, because these policies, if not uh, addressed, will be going on with the reconstruction on the same basis of let's just give more money for the bourgeoisie who are now in Western Europe to rebuild this country, which absolutely won't work, which would just create a lot more instability, especially like after the war where there will be a lot of instability because of the weapons and all of the stuff. So it's something that should be addressed very seriously together with addressing uh, the need for increasing military aid for Ukraine. Because, of course, it is one of the most important questions for us. It's literally a matter of life and death for us. Without European and American anti-air systems, I probably wouldn't speak with you. So. So glad you brought that up. And it, of course, puts it back into the political economic terrain, but also to the incredibly important point you just made about the Ukrainian resistance and the social help and the self-organization, despite the neoliberal policies coming from the government. And at the same time that the country stands as one against Russia. And this is not to let Russia off the hook because it follows the same kind of neoliberal policies there. So it really does put this in a kind of important perspective. And I'm glad you made that point. I'm going to go back to Jeremy now, because even though we don't have a lot of time, Jeremy, your perceptions from the ground are really important, as well as the sort of anecdotes that you've been collecting um, that are on your Substack. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that in terms of the morale of ordinary people in Ukraine that you've met, as well as how you see this war going. Well, first of all, I I see this war lasting at least another year. And I think that the Russians have at least another year's worth of war in them. And they really want to conquer Ukraine. And frankly, I think that they want much more than that. So I think that the war will continue. I think the Ukrainians, as long as they're well supplied, can hold off the Russians and eventually for some kind of peace negotiations at some point. Right now would be way too early to do such a thing. This is not the time to be doing peace negotiations because there's a Chinese plan, for instance, that I was just reading about where uh, the lines would be frozen where they were. And essentially, Russia would just take advantage of that and in another couple of years would uh, resume its attack. So. That's a non-starter for me. As far as the people are concerned, people have adapted to situations. I was talking to a friend who lives on the sixth floor of a building, and her electricity gets cut off, and she knows when it's going to be on, and she knows when it's going to be off. So she gets up at 2 o'clock in the morning to turn on the washing machine. She's (laughs) figured all of this out. She's adapted. and. You know, she walks up and down the stairs and she's quite willing to do that. You know, she says it's healthy. Luckily, it has been a fairly warm winter in Kiev. And so spring is coming. People are starting to feel a lot better with spring around the corner. That's something that I hear from from everyone. People are very concerned about the amount of blood that they're expending on the battlefield 
that is something that I hear about all of the time. And there's really there's really no alternative on that. You, I mean, if you uh, stop and have peace now, you know, have some kind of peace, the Russians will just keep going. It's part of this. I think we should probably call it ceasefire rather than peace. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. See, you're right. A ceasefire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and basically, what you would get is, I, I mean, the issue for me, I view this as as like a Ruski Mir issue, Russian world or Russian peace issue. And basically, the Russians are not going to stop until they are completely stopped, and they have to be stopped militarily. That's the only. I mean, nothing else will work. No one has access. The the left in Russia, what's left of it, has no access to the media, so it can't influence people. That's out of the question. That's all dead. It's a totalitarian state. But in in Kiev, what I see in the areas that I visited, I see people are determined to fight back in whatever way they can, whether that involves going the rounds and taking medicines to people who can't go out and get them themselves, or whether it involves taking food around. I see people volunteering. I see great community spirit there, which keeps this thing going. And I've never seen that anywhere in, in my life. And I'm just like, just like Vladislav said, it's, this, is, this is like completely new territory. I'd like to ask you a little bit about the huge amount of refugees that are created within the country, and you just were on your way out in Poland as well, you know, that has taken on a lot. And of course, we are already seeing refugees arrive in the United States, not gigantic amounts, but definitely here. And and it's, um, I guess, a question in a way about how that's affected a world, not just the world economic or global situation, but how people's perception of the war you know, has changed because of contact with refugees. And and I hope both of you can sort of chime in on that because it also raises the questions of what we in the West, you know, who are not supporting neoliberal neoliberalism and who are opposed to the Russian invasion, things that we can do. <laughs> I think that's for Vladislav. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> refugees and all of them, like, in all of the Western countries, and not only Western, Ukrainian refugees, there are a lot of problems of, I would say, some exclusivity that is given to Ukrainians, and that is uh, clearly seen racism, firstly, sometimes even towards Ukrainians, but uh, usually towards other nations as Syrian, Iranians, and so on. Mm. And I think it's important for the left to address that all refugees should be equally accepted, and not to create talks that what about is with hating Ukrainians for their acceptance, but to criticize precisely the system that tries to create this like border for the white people with uh, like let's let only people with blue eyes and white skin color. And I don't know if you follow, but there's still uh, refugee camps on Polish-Belarusian border for a third year now after the like, crisis that was three years ago, and the same on the Lithuanian border, and this still exists, and people are dying because European Union don't want to have Syrian refugees in their countries. They mm. don't want these people. And it is important for us, for the left, and for Ukrainians to bring other people there, to bring other people in the struggle, to not just be like building walls around ourselves and saying, okay, we should let Ukrainians go in and stop for everyone else. It's important to build these connections with different communities of oppressed people and to fight for their rights and uh, starting from the refugee rights. Uh, for Ukrainians, there's still a lot of problems because they go in the, all of these like Western countries, which are very, I don't know, culturally have uh, this like feel of moral superiority. And sometimes it's hard for Ukrainians to adapt. Sometimes there are like huge issues with, uh, for example, abortions in Poland, where people who were raped by Russian soldiers mm-hmm. are facing the situation that absolutely absurd for them that abortions are illegal in Poland. So it's something that should be addressed and all of the struggles connected. So progressive struggles, struggles for inclusion of all people connected and bring with the topic of Ukraine to this universalist point of view that 
all the struggle are should be going together and uh, you don't need to separate them i think it's very important and yeah yeah i i think it's what uh, <laughs> lesson should do and to continue to do and not only on the topic of refugees but generally there is for example going increasingly authoritarian alliance of different leaders different movements from trump modi china russia iran of all like far right movements like parties like ifd le pen who have clearly connections to putin how mm-hmm. they are bonding together against ukraine and against just human rights and democracy and how this is global struggle and struggle against putin are inter- interconnected with struggle against trump and against uh, all of this authoritarian stuff and imperialism worldwide these people are increasingly dependent on each other in their crusade against what they call liberal world order against unipolar world order or some of other crops that they're calling to justify attack on the democracy attack against minorities attack against abortion rights and they're all going the same and it is important the defeat of putin is also defeat for Trump, who are now actively going on this pro-Russian side that blah, 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 yeah. uh, US uh, created a coup in Maiden and all of this shit that he's talking really <laughs> on the big TV channels, which is absolutely absurd. And uh, like AFD, who are participating together in Germany with Sarah Wagenknecht from the like conservative left on the same talking points, trying to abandon Ukraine. And all of this now is uh, interconnected struggle. It's uh, even, I don't I think, think any time there, there was such clear interconnection, like Iran who suppresses their people are selling weapons to Russia and for this money financing their police. And uh, yeah, it's now fighting against Putin and fighting against all the far right and all of the world is interconnected and winning in one struggle strengthens other struggles against other authoritarian tendencies. I think it's something that should be noted by the left and should be actively engaged in terms of Ukraine and worldwide. So, yeah. So I love that you said all of that and we really have to finish with this last question. And that is because it it absolutely moves to it. And that is you've described the role of the anti-democratic pro-authoritarian xenophobic right worldwide. But now we have to look at a new development. Maybe it isn't so new. We saw it, you know, during the time of the Stalin-Hitler pact uh, in the United States. But there's this rise of this so-called left, which hides its support for authoritarian regimes like in China, like in Russia, like in back-ended support in Syria, and calls themselves socialists, but neglects to talk about bottom-up democratic socialism. And for those of us who consider ourselves socialism, understand, and going all the way back to Marx, that socialism and democracy are one in the whole thing. I always try to say that socialism is just genuine democracy. And so, you know, from the ground up, but that seems to be absent. And it's a good time to ask you what you think. So many, you know, like an ocean away and, and, and thousands of miles away, how you see this development that hides behind this anti-war stance, which in fact ignores, you've talked a little bit about Ukraine and only sees this war in terms of anti-American and anti-NATO actions, and of course, Russian. I think the left should realign itself on the pretext of securing democracy and fighting for it, for its extension, inclusivity, and so on. And yeah, there is a big problem with the left, uh, with left-wing ideas. And uh, it the same was happening in times of Syria, with all of these assets, and now it's going on, and I think... The only way is actually separate and fight against these tendencies. Fight uh, as your political opponents. They are not on your side. They don't have the same beliefs as you. Because if they are failing on Ukraine, they are failing on absolutely every human rights and democratic issue. Because it's absolutely the same universalist logic. If you don't support people here, you probably would be supporting people uh, on the same basis uh, as other people in other countries, in your country. So... It's something that we should fight against and be united to try to realign with people who have genuinely believe the same as us to fight not only for social rights, but for human rights, for political rights and democracy. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's 
what we should do. And in US, there are at least two solidarity campaigns with Ukraine. One is called Ukraine Solidarity Network with such people as Dan Labots, uh, Hoy Hawkins, with, uh, well, okay, <laughs> I think it's uh, two good enough names. Mm-hmm. And also Ukraine's social solidarity campaigns who are engaged in this and also trying to fight this struggle. And I think it's important to interconnect it and use the situation uh, with Ukraine to really think what, what is left-wing values, what we, we are meaning when we call ourselves left. Like, what does it mean? Does it mean like geopolitics, anti-Americanism and blah, blah, blah and so on? Or does it mean like genuine fight for equality, for oppressed people, for supporting them, for solidarity between borders, for the democracy? So it's a possibility to think and realign uh, uh, different forces and to push what is right. And in context of Ukraine, it's absolutely necessary to fight for more weapons and for Ukraine to have a just peace that is achievable only with Ukrainian victory and to fight for this cause. And I, I think it's very important. And so I would say that I, myself, as a person, learned a lot from the American left. I would say that uh, Harrington was uh, like one of my biggest influence in my life. <laughs> like I have a books, a book of him like on my shelf. And now people who are confused with all of the situation, with what's going on with the left in America and so on, can learn from oppressed people like us, from Syrians, from us, from left of these oppressed countries, what's really going on, and try to just reconcile their beliefs and fight for what is right. I think think it's absolutely necessary and important. Or if we don't do this, I I think left wouldn't survive. It just would collapse because of... uh, lack of possibility to stand for their ideals. Uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely necessary to now to just remember who we are and fighting for this. Well, I can't thank you enough for that. And I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Jeremy, we're going to have you back to do more of your anecdotes and observations in Ukraine. But for now, I want to thank you both for joining me today. This has been incredibly illuminating and gratifying to talk to you today. I've been speaking with Vladislav Starobutsev, and he is a historian of Central and Eastern Europe and an activist with the Ukrainian Democratic Socialist Organization, Sotsiany Ruch. You'll hear a lot more about that. He's based in Kiev. And of course, with Jeremy Bigwood, an investigative journalist and photojournalist with a background in science. We'll talk about that someday. And as a journalist, he's been covering the wars in Central America and was in Russia. We already heard about that the day of the invasion and went straight to Ukraine and has been there back and forth several times over the last year. And he returned just a few days ago. And you can follow his writings about portraits of what he saw there on his Substack, the Big Wood site. Thank you both for joining me. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Beneath the Surface. Thank you so much. Thank you, Susie. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.